And good morning, brethren. Welcome to installment number five of our series entitled The Life of Jesus in Chronological Order. Oh. Hello, hello. Okay, is that better? Yeah. All right. Oops. Thank you for that. So today we would venture off into, happy birthday, Tony. Today we would venture off into (laughs) events uh, 33 through 46. And here we were looking at the second and third Passover that took place during the public ministry of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus. I'm saying that because I want to make sure that no one thinks that the first Passover didn't take place until then. The first Passover took place a while back. But we're looking at the ones that took place during uh, Christ Jesus' public ministry. So, so far, uh, Jesus has spent most of his time, if you will, in the northern part of the country with only short visits to Jerusalem. So after spending his first Passover that took place of his public ministry in Jerusalem, he returns home. He returns home to work there. And during the year between the second Passover and the third Passover, we find that the Lord, our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus, will minister um, exclusively in the area around Galilee, uh, near his original home and the home of many of his apostles. So at this time, would you join me in prayer, please? Our blessed Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you, Father. Father, what a wonderful blessing it is that we have this opportunity today to come here to 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 sharing your word father not in just this study this morning father but later in worship service as we sing together pray together as we commune together father may we look at the opportunities that we have to come together here at this building father a wonderful opportunity not only to fellowship but also to encourage one another to continue in good works father we thank you for this blessing these things we pray and thank you for in christ jesus most holy name amen So we pick up the account from the point where Christ Jesus was in Cana, at Cana, in the north, and returns to Jerusalem for a brief visit during, again, the second Passover, which took place during his ministry. And after that, we'll see he returns again and goes back up north to do some work. So there are 13 events recorded during this particular period. And most are described by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We will see uh, in the first event that we will look at today, John talks mostly there. And uh, in the last three, John has some input, but again, it's mostly um, Matthew and and, uh, Mark. So if we turn our attention to event number 33. I do have a question, a discussion question, but it's, it's farther down in the lesson. I'm not sure how long it's going to take, how long we're going to be on it, but I do have two questions, actually. But the one I wanted is going to take place during the lesson learn section of this, uh, this particular lesson today. So event number 33, Jesus attends the second, pa- uh, the second uh, Passover during his public ministry. We see this at John chapter 5, verses 1 through 47. So if we remember back from last week, At his first appearance at the temple, Christ Jesus showed quite a bit of zeal. He didn't like what he saw, and he ran quite a few people out of the temple because he felt they were desecrating what they were doing. 
There were signs there. There was teaching. And we looked at it at that time. We saw that the priests there saw him as a nuisance. They saw him as a nuisance, and they tried to get rid of him by, by first confronting him. And that seemed to be the pattern. When I don't like something, I don't like you, let me confront you first. And if that doesn't work, then I'm going to throw lies and accusations at you. If that doesn't work, I may get you thrown in jail. But in the end, if none of this is working, we're just going to take you out. We're going to kill you. So the second Passover appearance then infuriates the Jews. And it it infuriated them for two reasons. Christ Jesus did something they just felt he should not have done. He could not do. He did not have the authority to do, the power to do anything like that. First item was this right here. He healed the man on the Sabbath. And on top of that, he just didn't heal a man on the Sabbath. Of all places, he did it in the temple. They considered this work. But it got worse. He even told a man to pick up his pallet and carry it. That's more work. And then the second thing was in his preaching. What was he preaching? When he was preaching, he was equating himself to God. And that was a punishable by death if it's not true. Now, who's the judge of this? Definitely not God. It will be the Pharisees and so forth. They're the ones who's saying it is not true. So his position then has gone from being a challenger and a nuisance to an enemy and a threat. And John says that they began seeking ways to kill him. So it was at that point that his life was now in danger if he continues to stay in Jerusalem. So, yes, it was time to leave because it wasn't yet time for him to give his life for us. Event 34. He returns to Galilee. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Now, Luke is kind of uh, interesting how he did this. It is only Luke here who begins this section with and without, if you will, connecting it to other events. The information that we find in, in uh, it, it matches what we find in Matthew and Mark, okay? Uh, and, and, and during that time frame, and again, we have to remember we're dealing with the synoptics here. We have the events taking place, and they are talking about those events, but the individuals that are writing about those events may not be saying that in the same, in the same light, if you will, but they're still saying that these events took place. So when we look here, what we find is this. Jesus, he's rejected in Jerusalem. He goes back north, uh, and he goes home to his hometown of Nazareth, okay? And he's preaching there. And he also begins to declare his identity of who he is by telling them that a passage that they read in Isaiah, it is talking directly about him personally. And his people are amazed. They're amazed because they see him as a homeboy. And look at what this homeboy is doing. But when he insists that this is true, or it's the truth, and that if they don't accept his message, then that message is going to be taken to the Gentiles. That's a new development in his preaching. Now we got another problem. They, too, became angry. They, too, tried to mob him. And again, he has to escape, and he leaves town. Event 35, he settles in Capernaum. 
We see the text on the board where we can read this. And uh, there's a copy of the reading for next week out on the table already. So I, I see here a little early dates. So I was able to get that out. So after his rejection in Nazareth, what does he do? He goes to his adult home in Capernaum, which is on the north side of the lake. And he settles there. And here he teaches. He performs miracles. And one of the miracles he performs is he casts out demons. And here the people are amazed. And they spread the knowledge of him throughout the region. And, you, you know, the, the interesting thing about this and the good thing about this is that by them spreading this information out, they are helping him spread his ministry. They are helping him spread his work. It's something my granddad always told me. He said, your name would travel farther than you ever will. And it's the same thing here. This message traveled farther than he did. Because, remember, he, he worked in a very finite uh, a finite area of, of his ministry. But this word is spreading. Event 36, we have the healing of Simon's mother-in-law. We see again the text on the board where Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, these events come close together. Because of this, it is really hard to put in order uh, which happens first. But the different writers do say it happened. And again, we're dealing with the synoptics here. So they may not have it in the right order, but these things here did happen. We had preaching and healing at Capernaum. That took place. We have Simon's uh, mother-in-law being healed. That took place. And Christ Jesus also is beginning to call his apostles. Call his apostles to work. Mark says that immediately after leaving the synagogue, they went to Peter's house and Christ Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. But he also, we read that, we find that he healed, he healed a lot of uh, wealthy or rich people as well who sought him out. This event leads to the next event, logically, which is the call of Simon, Andrew, James, and John. We see this in Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 5. What we find here is that Mark appears to be out of sync somewhat with his account of what took place here. You see, Mark, his gospel series here seemed to have been taken in snapshots of Jesus' life, and they're not meant to follow a, a precise chronological order. But when we turn our attention to Luke, Luke being a historian, Luke being a physician, Luke likes to have things perfectly in order. Remember what he wrote to Theophilus. He wanted him to have the exact account of way, the way things happened. That's the way Luke thought. So after powerful preaching followed by miracles, even the miracle that was done done for the apostles themselves and that he showed them you remember he showed them how to go out and catch a large catch of fish the lord takes the opportunity to call these four men into full-time ministry and again those four men are simon andrew james and john so up until this time these men had continued in their work as fishermen and they followed jesus as disciples but now Jesus calls them to leave everything and follow him for full-time work of ministry. Now their training as apostles began in full earnest. So it takes us to event number 38. Circuit preaching through Galilee. Once Jesus has his disciples called, he sets out on a, a preaching tour, if you will, in the region. He's doing miracles. He's teaching. And 
news of these activities that have taken place in Jerusalem, that's been known, that's known as well, you might say, and it's causing great interest there in the north. They want to see more. They want to hear more because they've heard about Jerusalem. So Jesus began the training process of his newly called apostles by taking them along on this speaking tour that up to this point, he was doing all the work himself. He was doing all the speaking. He was doing all the work. He was doing this alone. He was all on his own. But now he has these men with him as well, which takes us to event 39. He heals a leper. The Jews believe that the Messiah came, that when the Messiah came, I should say, he would be able to help lepers. And so the leper comes to Jesus, convinced that Jesus could cure him. So what happened? Jesus cures him. And Jesus does this. And so when he does this, there's a reason for it. And the reason is this right here. This man came to him in faith that Jesus was the Messiah. So Jesus healed him. Jesus tells him not to tell anyone to avoid people. In, in, he wanted them to do this because he wanted to avoid people just coming to him. Not because he realized they wouldn't be coming so much because of faith in him. I'm a leper. I just want to be healed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's not about faith. I just want you to heal me. And he knew that's where people would come. Remember the, the conversation he had with the feeding of the 5,000. He said that some of you came because of the bread. And some of you came because of the faith. Now, this man is overjoyed. And who wouldn't be? He can't contain himself. And he tells everyone. He tells everyone. So there's a problem here. This causes the Lord to avoid the cities because of the crowds that were searching him out. Not, not because of faith. Because they were looking for a sign. They were looking for a miracle. They just wanted to see somebody get healed. So we get to event number 40. Return to Capernaum. The lepers' unwanted publicity seems to have forced an end to this preaching tour that Christ Jesus was on. So he returns to his home in Capernaum. But what we find that even though when he went back home to Capernaum, there were still large crowds of people that were seeking him out. They were even coming to his house to seek him out. And it was during this time that several men who couldn't get into the house to Christ Jesus, you remember reading about this, they, they made a hole in the roof so that they can lure their friend down so that he can be with our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus so that Christ Jesus could heal him. So at this particular point, what happens? Before I say this, you know there's something? Wherever Christ Jesus went, there was always scribes and Pharisees there checking him out because, like I said, they were looking for something. They were looking for something. Anything he can do that they can say, oh, I got you. So Christ Jesus forgives the man's sins first. And he did this to show his divine authority. And when the scribes sit in there, question I'd rather win the strive sitting there question if he had the authority. What did Jesus do next? Christ Jesus then healed the man to show that he both had the authority to forgive sins and the power to heal since one goes with the other, which is to say God can heal and God can forgive. If you can do the one, you can do the other. So next we go to event 41, the calling of Matthew. Now, 
So basically, after this event, he was out by the Sea of Galilee, we're told, where he found and called Matthew to be his next disciple, or apostle, I should say. Now, so far, if we remember, most of them have all been, all of them, I should say, have been relatives and fishermen. Matthew was different, and they were from his region as well. Matthew was different. He was not a relative. He was not a fisherman. He was the despised tax collector. He kept, collected taxes for the Romans. But on top of that, out of the goodness of his heart, he had a surcharge. So he collected more than what's required. Now, as a tax collector for a foreign government, he was considered a sinner along with gamblers, herdsmen, uh, customs officials, etc. And as such, they could not act as judges or, or witnesses against others because of their moral uncertainty, if you will. But Jesus, nevertheless, he calls this man to follow him. You know what he does? He does so immediately. He does so immediately, and he was so enthusiastic about this, he invited a lot of people to his house, Jews included. Of course, he had his friends come along with him, too, who were considered sinners. So many of the sinner friends are there, and this causes the Jews again to murmur. They were looking for something. They caused him to murmur that Jesus was associating with sinners. I shared this with you guys a while back where a friend of mine said, he wouldn't baptize anyone unless they stopped sinning first, which was kind of interesting. We're all <laughs> I was a sinner when Brother Wilbur Wooldridge and Ray Raymer came to my house. If they had had that mindset, they never would have knocked on the door <laughs> because how could I stop being what I was being unless somebody showed me? So, so that's a mindset we have to be careful of. The people that we're going to be going out there to evangelize with are not going to be your upright Christians sitting in their house waiting on us to knock on their door. They're going to be lost people. And a lot of those lost people are going to be looking. And it's going to be our opportunity as, as evangelists going to them to help them find what it is they're looking for. But if our mindset is, unless you've already gotten over your drug addiction, your alcohol addiction, your gambling addiction, your whatever, your whatever, your whatever, I'm not going to ring your doorbell or knock on your door, then we're not going about the business of evangelism because if that's the case, Christ Jesus should have stayed in heaven because all of us needed him to come here. All of us needed him to come here. So, the next... Okay, so the next two events, um, I don't have any comments to make about those, but there was, there was a time there where there was a lot of questions about fasting. That was event number 42, and there were times there were a lot of questions. My finger got the best of me again. Oh, okay. My finger got the best of me again. Okay, and there were questions about working or on working, if you will. Then we get to okay, we'll skip that. I was in the Air Force. We don't improvise. We plan. Okay, but okay, so. Um, 
Event 44, the Pharisees plot his death. It was time to take him out. We've tried everything. We've confronted him. We lied about him. We've done this. We've done that. We've done that. Okay, it's just time to get rid of him. It's just time to get rid of him. So the Pharisees are plotting his death. And now that he, had, he was, um, if you will, now that he has saturated the north with his healing, with his miracles, with his teachings, and witnessed it about himself, there's that concerted effort. There's that concerted effort by the Pharisees that his teaching is wrong, his, his miracles are wrong. We're just going to push back hard at him because we need to kill him. So at first, as strange as it seems, it was those who followed John the baptizer who were showing opposition. And then it was the Pharisees' disciples who were challenging him and challenging the apostles because they didn't, they, and then they were challenging, okay, they didn't fast, okay? That was one of the things. And then the Pharisees who challenged him because they were, they remember they were going through the field and they, they plucked the corn there and they picked it and they ate it. But the answer to these and all the other objections was that Jesus was the Messiah, and in his presence, oh, thank you. And in his presence, that's where we are. yeah, and in his presence, fasting wasn't required in the first place. It wasn't required in the first place. And also, in his service, all work was blessed by him. So the Pharisees, of course, they rejected this. They rejected this. They rejected the claim of his being the Messiah. They rejected the claim of everything that he talked about. And when their efforts to discredit him failed, they began to try to silence him. It's time to silence him, to shut him up. So it takes us to event 45. Christ Jesus withdraws because of the attacks against him. What we find is that the confrontation and the plots to take his life, it forced him to withdraw, if you will, from from public places. But that did not stop him from preaching. That did not stop him from teaching. It did not stop the crowds from coming to him. Crowds still continued to come to him all the way from Jerusalem. And as a result, he continued to teach. He continued to heal all who came to him, which takes us to number 46. Event 46, Jesus appoints the 12. At this particular point, time, point in time, Christ Jesus' ministry had grown so large that he could not easily move from place to place to do the work that he was doing. And this was because of the crowds. He couldn't venture into the main um, cities without drawing violence toward himself. So what we have happened, after a long night of prayer, Jesus chooses among his many disciples 12 who would become his apostles. Now, let's separate this out a little bit. Disciples are ones who follow Jesus. We're Christians. Uh, we were first called Christians at Antioch, that T-I-A-N. I mean, that I-A-N. That means to follow. But we're also disciples, which differs from apostles who are messengers that are sent ahead of him. We have no apostles today. When the last apostle died, that ended it. Okay, although people today, there are some people today who still call themselves apostles. But they don't look old enough to have been apostles because there's nobody living in 2023 
that was there when Christ Jesus started his ministry in the first century. So there it's impossible that they are apostles. But these 12 men who have been disciples from the beginning of his ministry, they are called to be in exclusive service to Christ Jesus and the gospel. So as apostles then, as apostles, he gives them instructions and he gives them work to do and he gives them the power to go out and do these things. They were able to perform miracles. They were able to heal and so forth. This will change the nature and growth of his ministry as the apostles will now begin to bring the message ahead of Christ Jesus in the places that he will end up going later. So that takes us to our lesson from this and uh, the question that we have in a moment. So, although this section describes much of Jesus' work in the north and, and the growing opposition toward him, one thread that seems to be here throughout all of these events is the approach and work of the ministry. And the first one is this right here, for example. Ministry is in stages. Ministry is in stages. So, here, so here's the question. Why was it practical for Jesus to approach his ministry in stages? I guess that's the rhetorical part. How does this stage pattern relate to us? In, it, in terms of what we're doing here when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to ministry, how does this pattern of doing it in stages seem to work for us? Yes. So life in general is in stages, and okay. So it's that preparatory stage for us where God uses us and He prepares us to get to where he wants us to be. Is that what? Okay, thank you. Anyone else? Okay. So then, note that God sent Christ Jesus out in stages. We see, we see his work as a boy in the ministry there. It, it didn't seem like a ministry, but we see what was going on as a child, then as a boy, and we see how he was working with his family. We see how he was working in the region, how he went out to the major cities how he worked with his disciples and later his apostles and the list goes on and on. Note also that the disciples grew in their time and in their commitment. First they were part-timers. First they were part-timers. Then apostles finally giving their lives to God in death. In the end God would want us to be with him and devoted to him forever. And for, the, for us, we should be saying what a joy it is. What a joy it is that he wants us to be this way. And, as, and so as disciples and ministers, we are in this life working our way toward total devotion now. So I have three, so, um, I have three things to put, add to that. And, it's, and it comes with our mindset. In our class on Thursday night, we, the title of the discussion was Virtual God. 
Okay, and one thing we were talking about technology, right? And one of the brothers made this comment here. He said the issue with what we're doing with live streaming and things like that, he said the issue is not technology. The issue is the heart. And you think about it, that's, that's, that's a fact. The issue is not the technology, the issue of the heart. Technology is not keeping people from being here at services this morning. Technology is not keeping people from being on even online this morning. The heart is what's keeping people from doing those things. So then, what it comes down to is this. If you don't, if you don't want it now, you're not going to have it later. That's the bottom line. The other part is, those who love the world, even if they say they are Christians, do so at the expense of devoting themselves to God. And number three, we need to check which way we're going. Because, again, it's about the heart. Are we more devoted to God or less devoted to God? When we look back at ourselves, however long we've been a Christian, year one, and here we are at year 20, are we more or less devoted to God? That is the question that we can ask ourselves. That's rhetorical. No answer required. And the second thing is this right here. Ministry is like stone polishing. There's a book called Acres of Diamonds. And the mindset behind that book is only about this thing. The mindset behind that book is this right here. When we look out as, as, as children of God, as Christians, when we look out over that field, there are acres of diamonds out there, but right now they're unpolished, uncut, rough-looking stones. What we need to do is go out there and help those individuals become polished, become precious jewels, become precious gems. The example of what Christ, is, Christ Jesus did with the apostles is much like what he does with the church. He took 12 very different men, zealots, tax collectors, fishermen, intellectuals, etc. He took these different people. This congregation is a diverse congregation, and that's a beautiful thing. Because you got all of this diversity in here. You got young, you got old, you got black, you got white, you got Asian, you got whatever. You got uh, uh, socially economic uh, money makers and you got those who are, who are struggling. But God has taken all of us together. And like 12 uncut stones, which we see these men right here, unpolished stones, he put them in a bag and he shook them together in three years. And there were the circumstances, there were the challenges, there were all the experiences that was going on. And at the end of the day, went three and a half, three years later, 11 of them, 11 of them came out smooth and polished like jewels. One didn't, and that one was crushed to dust, and that was Judas. And it is the same with us in the church. Jesus takes different people with different backgrounds, just like I just finished talking about. Put all of us in a bag and shakes us up for a time, for a lifetime, if you will. Some will come out as smooth and polished stones, ready for his crown by faithfully persevering in faith and in love. And some will be returned to dust because of unfaithfulness, sinfulness, and a lack of commitment. So my last question, how do we, who are members of God's kingdom today, 
develop the characteristics the characteristics I have to get that right because Sister Marilyn will get me <laughs> so how do we who are members of God's kingdom today develop the characteristics of the apostles who were the first to follow Jesus how do we develop the same characteristics as those men how do we do it yes court Follow the pattern. Spend time with him. Without doing that, it's very difficult to become like him. You know, there was a gentleman, I, I can't remember the name of this book, but it was it's been about this thick. And that book was entitled, Behold the Pattern. And that's what he talked about in that entire book. The pattern, the pattern, the pattern. The pattern is there. Yes, Stephen. They did that pattern and they gave up the previous life. Ah, they gave up that previous life. They gave it up. Enthusiastically even. I mean, you, it, we did a, I did a lesson a while back entitled, I Can't Steal Second With My Foot On First. And that's the, that's the example right there. And we, uh, we talked a lot about Abraham when he was told, Abraham, you got to get up and go now. Leave family, leave everything. Get up and go where I tell you. And oh, by the way, I'm not going to tell you where you're going yet, but I want you to go. Abraham did not hesitate. He did not keep a foot on first and try to get over the second. He stepped off first base enthusiastically and he went. And God told him later where he was going to stop. And that's the way we have to realize it too as Christians. I mean, as if we're going to be Christians really, we got, we got to step off first and go to second. You can't steal second with your foot on first. If you know anything about baseball, if you read about Ricky Henderson and those guys, they never stole first. They never stole second while they were still standing on first. They took off. They took off. And every one of them took off with this mindset. I'm faster than the person who got the ball in their hand. I can get there. And that's the mindset we need to have. That's the same mindset we need to have. Anyone else? Josh. You have to remember you can't do it all. Um, he chose a, a group of men from all different backgrounds and all different skills. Um, you know, it, it takes a family, it takes a body to, uh, to get the whole thing done. Yeah. Great. You can't do it all. It takes a body to get the thing done. It kind of goes back to that, that, that African thing. It takes a village to raise a child. It takes a congregation to do the work of the Lord. You know, we, 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 we have in these brainstorming sessions here about uh, how we can better work within the congregation serving our God. And the mindset behind that is how can we as a family come together and do the work that's required here? For too many years, and you guys are probably familiar with this, for too many years we've heard this. 10% of the people are doing the work and 90% are watching. How about reversing that? 90% of the people are doing the work 
and 10% are watching. But the 10% who are watching are not just watching, they're praying. There was a sister here. Her name was uh, Georgia May. Georgia May. We had a, uh, when I first started worshiping here at this congregation, uh, Brother Eddie Clore had come up here. He had brought a group of people up here to help us evangelize, do some evangelistic work here in Anchorage. And Sister Georgia May, as I remember, she couldn't get out. But Sister Georgia May wanted to help. So Sister Georgia May wanted to know, what can I do? And somebody said, well, Sister Georgia May, we're going to have desserts brought over to the building every day by different people. We have a list. Your job is to pick up the phone every day and remind those individuals of what they're supposed to bring. Sister Georgia May took that serious. She called my house. Barbara answered the phone. I need to speak to James. Barbara said, James is over at the church. Sister Georgia May called the church. Somebody came up to the, came up, called the office. Somebody came and got me. James, you got a phone call. Hey, Sister Georgia May. Hey, Sister Georgia May, how you doing? I want to remind you, you need to take your dessert to the church. See, it's a lot of stuff we can do. But there are, there are 90% of the people here that are healthy and able to get out and do this stuff. And that 10% who can't, the sick and the shut in, they can be praying for us. They can be encouraging us. They can be doing a lot of things and we let them do it. So again, I say to you, and I said this Wednesday and I say it again, these, this, this brainstorming we have is not about the direction of the church. We already know which direction we need to go in. We just need to start working together to make it happen. Yes. Okay. Welcome. One word I want to bring it down for all of us submission. We must submit. Submit. You know, we got to submit whoever's the leader. Give it out as a point for the leader of the church and all the members of the church as Christ should be called. So if we can't submit, then we can't work Thank you. Thank you. We have to submit. We have to submit. That is so true. We've, we've talked about this over, over years and p- years past. Submission, submission, submission. That's, you know, with the day that we say we're going to put on Christ Jesus in the waters of baptism, we're saying we're submitting to him. The day that we say we're gonna, we want to identify with this congregation and work under the oversight of the eldership, we're saying we're submitting to that. Anybody else? All right. Well, thank you all for joining us today. Uh, again, the, um, the, the reading uh, items for next week is on the, uh, on the foyer table already. And I got something that someone asked me to bring them. So look forward to seeing you guys as we get into worship service in a few minutes.